truth. Well, I was born too late to be a rolling stone. I don't know Jerry Lee. I've never met Johnny Noble standing with a strap. I'm mocking those bastards, son. Go out there, drunk and wild, have fun. I don't got a million dollars, don't drive a Cadillac. Give me every chance, cause I'm not dead yet. And welcome to Stop the Presses, your host, Mark Anderson, coming to you live for the second week consecutively. I'm getting better. And it's 1 p.m. Central Time here in Tejas, a.k.a. Texas. And, of course, we have lots of good articles posted here at republicbroadcasting.org. Always check that out. Lots of good shows, radio shows, some new hosts. Check out the roster here. And last week... I had Oliver Haydorn on here about a monetary reform idea, concept, that may sound to some in the audience as counterintuitive. And I encourage you to go back, if you didn't hear it last week, and listen on the archive from last Wednesday when my guest today, Oliver Haydorn, was on here explaining the basic history and framework of what's known as Douglas social credit. That word Douglas being key. It's not the Chinese um, surveillance, reward, and punishment system to keep you in line. Nothing of the sort. In fact, the exact opposite. And so this predates that, of course, by decades. And Douglas refers to C.H. Douglas, an engineer in Britain who uh, discovered a lot of flaws and inconsistencies with the monetary system, the financial system, and devised a way to fill the gap, to, to uh, correct those flaws. And when you do that, society has a way of straightening out along cultural, moral, and political lines because the defective monetary system is the chief cause of many of our social ills, directly and indirectly. And Oliver explained a considerable amount of that last week on this show. And as I indicated in the show notes, he'd probably return today, and he has And we're going to get into some other aspects of Douglas social credit. And in the process, we'll reiterate a little bit of what we talked about last week, but also talk about some new dimensions of it. Oliver, thanks for being back on the show. Thanks for having me, Mark. Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, Last week, you talked about the uh, history and the mechanism of social credit chiefly, and you talked about an important part of that, and that's how it's not just some higgly-piggly, uncontrolled, undisciplined, universal basic income where you just rob Peter to pay Paul and redistribute and uh, raise the debt in the process. In fact, it's the exact opposite where you create new credits, interest-free, debt-free, and put them into the economy strategically, that is, in the sense that it fills a specific gap of a specific amount where the uh, pay and uh, the salaries, the wages, the dividends that go normally to the working people, to salaried and wage people, falls short of all the prices and costs that are created in production. And that shortfall is a gap, and that gap, the size of it, can be known and uh, measured And then the creation of the debt-free credits would fill that gap in a precise way 
So it's not something that would run out of control like wild horses, like the other proposal. So you got into some of that. Uh, Today, while we'll reiterate that, it's unavoidable to do so along the way. I'd like to talk about something you only touched on last week, and that's the cultural heritage. And that's sort of the philosophy that gives way to policy, you might say. Um, I've read up on Douglas Social Credit for a number of years, and this is really kind of the key to understanding the meaning of the whole thing, is it not? Yes, so... On Douglas's analysis, he would say that the primary cause behind this recurring price income gap in the economy has to do with real capital, so machines, equipment, software these days, this sort of thing. And it has to do with the way in which that real capital is financed and how those the costs are then passed on to the consuming public. So that's real capital, it's doing two things at once. It's, its as I said, it's one of the main drivers of this price-income gap, but at the same time, it is a kind of tool or the, the embodiment of past knowledge that's been bequeathed to us by so many scientists, organizers, engineers, administrators, etc., that enables us to, to produce more or better with fewer and fewer people working. The real capital both on the physical side and on the financial side, it has two effects simultaneously. It's generating a gap between the rate at which costs and prices are being built up in the economy versus the rate at which incomes are being distributed to consumers as wages, salaries, and dividends. And at the same time, it is responsible for the phenomenon of technological um, displacement of labor. So, we're able, because of real capital, we're able to produce more with fewer and fewer people working. And so there are two problems there. And Douglas's idea of the national dividend, which is one of the two compensatory um, measures that he devised to make up for or compensate for this recurring lack or deficiency of consumer buying power in the economy, the national dividend would, on the one hand, help to compensate for a certain portion of that gap. And at the same time, it would give everyone an income that would be delinked or you know disconnected from employment status. So the idea there is that uh, we could all be regarded, we all should be regarded as shareholders in our economies. And on that basis, we should be drawing a dividend whenever the economy is profitable. Now, if, if the economy we have in place because of the nature of the financial system, if it's generating costs and prices at a faster rate, then it's distributing income to us with which we can then buy the corresponding goods and services, that gap, you can look at it as a, as a kind of profit, that's be, you know, a physical profit that's being made, a surplus. And the, the dividend as well as the discount, are the two ways Douglas proposed to monetize that gap with debt-free credit. Um, carefully calculated, like you were saying, so that we're not overshooting the gap, we're not creating too much compensatory money, and we're not creating too little, we're creating the exact amount after the, the gap has been measured to ensure that the two sides of the equation balance. Um, that then would allow us all to enjoy 
a dividend, let's say it could be a periodic uh, payment on a monthly basis, delinked from employment status, and it would vary as um, conditions vary. So if the gap increases, then there's going to be a greater need for more money to balance prices and incomes, and so the dividend would be larger. And if the, the gap is smaller, then the size of the dividend would, uh, would be correspondingly reduced. Now, this idea of, of you know, treating every citizen as a, a shareholder in his, in his economy, in the Economic Association of the Nation, it's based on, I suppose you could say, three basic ideas. We talked about one of them already, though I haven't given it an explicit name. But, uh, and, and you mentioned it as well, and that's the idea of, of the cultural heritage. So, with every generation that comes into the world, with scientific advancements, technological advancements, engineering progress, etc., we learn to, to do things in a more efficient, effective way. And so when those scientists, engineers, um, administrators, etc., when they, when they pass on, we can regard their discoveries, inventions, um, as, as something that they have bequeathed to all of us, to, to the whole society, and that every person is rightly regarded as an heir to this cultural heritage, which you know began so many thousands of years ago with things like fire and the wheel, but which we have been progressively building up and refining and adding to this, this stockhouse of, um, of technological awareness and, and ability. That's one basis for, you know, to justify the claim to a national dividend that we're all heirs to the cultural heritage. But there are two other phenomena that, um, that Douglas identified that also give us some justification, some claim for, you know, creating and distributing this national dividend. And that is uh, the notion of the unearned increment of association. So wh whenever groups of people work together cooperatively, there is some ability that comes into existence which enables those people to achieve some end more easily or better than any individual would be able to do if he was working on his own. That benefit of association, which is you know, fundamental to society, and that, that is actually what the word social credit ultimately refers to. It's this, this power of people working together in association to achieve desired ends. That is something that doesn't belong to any particular person. It belongs to all of us. And so each individual should, as an individual, be able to derive some benefit financially from that. And the third concept was just the notion of uh, natural resources, that there are all sorts of things that we take for granted, water, air, the carbon cycle, etc., which could rightly be regarded as gifts of God or nature to the whole of humanity, and it's not something that any one person monopolizes or should be allowed to monopolize. And these inputs are present in every productive process. So there are three bases, uh, metaphysically and scientifically, for claiming that uh, people are justified in receiving an income delinked from work, and the financial system actually re requires them to have that if we're going to ever achieve 
equilibrium between flow of costs and prices and the flow of incomes on the other hand. Now, you know, whenever you start talking about this, people do raise all sorts of objections. One of the objections that is often raised is the claim that this would be inflationary. Now, I already explained that the amount that would be created and distributed would be carefully calculated so that we're just filling the gap. We're not overshooting the gap. But beyond that, it's important to understand that Douglas's remedial measures were to be put in place in lieu of all the existing palliatives. So there's an underlying, a chronic underlying deficiency of consumer buying power in the economy as it stands. And, of course, the existing financial system has to have some way of compensating for it, and it does it mainly through debt. So it relies on some economic agent, could be the government, could be a consumer, could be a business, to go and borrow more money into existence from the banking system because every bank loan and purchase creates bank credit, and 95% of the money supply or more is bank credit. And the paying off of every bank loan and the, the sale of every bank purchase destroys credit. So that, I mean, that's the nature of our money system. And uh, as long as those palliatives are no longer in play in a Douglas social credit system, then we can ensure that only sufficient compensatory consumer credits are being created and distributed to balance out the uh, flow of um, incomes on the one hand and the flow of costs and prices on the other. I don't know if you have any specific questions on what I just explained. Um, well, I can put in some observations uh, very clearly explained. Um, a lot of people think, or they've been bred or programmed to think, Oliver, that in the capitalist system, uh, well, first of all, they think there's really only two systems, capitalism versus socialism. It's just a uh, binary uh, dichotomy type thing. And then they'll think, well, the first thing is not to be a socialist. Well, then to be a capitalist, a lot of people don't even recognize, but I often talk about it, that capitalism has variations. You have more of a monopoly capitalism, and then you have real free enterprise. And they're not exactly the same. There isn't just one kind of capitalism like a lot of people very, very wrongly believe. And so if you're real free enterprise, it becomes much more logical to go the way you're talking to make everyone a shareholder in the Commonwealth and everyone essentially becomes a capitalist one degree or another. And then that kind of defeats this idea that only the bigwigs should own the natural resources. Only the bigwigs should earn dividends. And this is this is sort of the programming that people have to break. They have to climb that ladder and, and hook by hook and by crook and claw their way up, sometimes uh, stepping on people's heads on the way up. And uh, it becomes cutthroat. We've all heard about that in, you know, in the capitalist venue. And people, I think, are just bred to believe that that's just the way the world is. And you've got to just... Um, in sort of a Darwinian system, um, winner takes all. You've got to climb that ladder ruthlessly. But this this is telling you that that doesn't have to be. Yes, that, that's right. So, you know, whenever we talk about capitalism or socialism, uh, it can become a very uh, 
fractious and and confusing sort of discussion because, of course, there are so many ways in which these things have been dis, uh, defined, as you've been saying. But I, uh, as far as capitalism is concerned, I, uh, one way of defining it um, would be to say that it's an economic system where ownership and labor are somewhat separated. In other words, some people are the owners, other people don't own anything, and therefore the only thing that they can do to survive is sell their labor to those who own productive uh, resources or productive capital. And what ends up happening, if you, if you start an economic system on that basis, what ends up happening over time, is, as you were saying, you end up with the concentration of ownership in fewer and fewer hands. So you end up with monopoly capitalism. And when you have monopoly capitalism of one kind or another, then uh, there's a lack of competition. Many people don't uh, recognize, and it's, it's sort of one of my pet peeves, actually. You, you've got uh, conventional right-wingers and libertarians, let's say, uh, proponents of laissez-faire economics, who love to talk about all the benefits of the free market. And, uh, you know, things like... Uh, uh, efficiency, right? It makes for physical efficiency, so we're not wasting resources. It ensures uh, what's sometimes been referred to as capitalist justice, or a dollar. You get a dollar's worth of goods or services for every dollar you have. No one's taking advantage of the other. It, it also ensures, or it's supposed to ensure, choice, consumer choice. But that actually, those benefits that we associate with the free market generally only occur when you are dealing with uh, markets that are perfectly competitive. So you actually need a large number of small and medium-sized firms that are competing with each other in order to ensure that the, the free market will deliver those kinds of ends. When you, when you have a monopoly market, then you know people don't have that kind of choice. And the monopolists, because they're the only show in town, they can set conditions and prices to suit themselves at the expense of all other economic agents. So D Douglas... Social credit is very much in favor of private property. It's very much in favor of the profit motive. It's very much in favor of uh, the market mechanism. But at the same time, it recognizes that in order for that to work properly the way the textbooks say that it's supposed to, we actually have to find some way of ensuring that there's uh, a lot of competition going on. And uh, and one way of, of contributing to that sort of uh, outcome is to enfranchise as many people as possible to ensure that we are all owners. In other words, we're all capitalists. I think G.K. Chesterton uh, was the fellow that said the problem with capitalism is that there are too few capitalists. So from one point of view, Douglas social credit could be recognized as the universalization of capitalism. Not that we would all necessarily be equally owners, but that a bare minimum of ownership would be assured through the dividend, because we have this gap to fill in the economy. Um, yeah, every, every individual citizen would be an owner, at least to some minimal extent. And so it's, it's a way of enfranchising everyone, distributing power. And it's, it's only when you have that large distribution that you can then get all the, the benefits that uh, are normally associated with, with free market economics. Let me come in right there, Oliver. Uh, that was very well said. Um, 
they expect, that is, the conventional capitalists there to be this magic free market, the hidden hand, as it were, and it's supposed to be impartial. But how can there be, um, how can that be if there's too few competitors, too few real capitalists, but a relative few at the top of the power pyramid with increasing centralized power? They control the vast majority of the resources, the capital, the machinery, the delivery routes, the trade routes, etc. And, of course, they get the lion's share of the lines of credit. They get all the favorable loan um, conditions from the financial system, while the average consumer having to borrow their existence um, gets unfavorable rates and whatnot if they get a loan at all. And so, yeah, you if you multiply and universalize the idea of, of capital ownership, and capital control, even if it's not perfectly balanced, then then and only then, literally only then, could you have the competition that the free marketers and the uh, you know um, uh, Ludwig von Mises and and whatnot, uh, the the Austrian schoolers that they think that they think magically happens. It cannot happen unless you have enough competitors and you don't have monopoly. And so you wonder if. The Austrian school is sometimes pushed to kind of, uh, as a cover story, to make things sound like they're the ideal way, when in fact it kind of covers up and leaves the monopolists unchallenged and unscathed. And so I think there's some propaganda value to that, to just repeat the idea that we live in a free market when we really don't. That's that's right. In fact... Um this may come as a bit of a shock, and I, I'm not saying necessarily that this is um, true, but there are, interestingly enough, there are right-wing libertarian-type think tanks in the United States, like the, the Heritage Foundation, which uh, on a regular basis puts out rankings of the you know all the countries in terms of how economically free they are. And, you know, a lot of people... A lot of ideologues in the United States like to present, however tacitly, the USA as sort of being Shangri-La, a free market ideal. And yet, I have to say this, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Uh, the USA ranks lower on these economic freedom indices than Canada and and yet everyone, you know, well, a lot of people would look at Canada and just assume, well, that's a socialist country. So the United States is, of course, it's a mixed economy, as all modern economies are. But it's actually, according to the Heritage Foundation, anyway, it's actually further to the left, if you will, in certain significant ways than the Canadian economy. Uh, that's rather surprising. Um, mm. I didn't even I didn't even know that one. You know, I I think what you're saying, Oliver, also ties into this um, idea that okay, how can you possibly or this observation you made? How can we produce? Won't people become lazy? Won't they um, uh, become couch potatoes uh, a la mode if? They're getting more and more dividend income that's disconnected from labor. And so you'll often hear the refrain, and I'm doing the devil's advocate a little bit here, well, it's just going to create a bunch of freeloaders and loafers. And last week when you were on the show, we knocked down some other common objections. Well, this is just socialism. Well, the uh, dividend is just a UBI. We've already addressed that. And people can listen last week, and maybe we'll reiterate some of that. 
And then you've talked about how this is really not inflationary, even though it might sound at first blush like it could be. But now there's another one of those things out there where it'll create a nation of freeloaders. No one will want to work. Productivity will go down, and therefore the, the dividend will have to go up because there'll be no one producing. But I know that on the other hand, um, we've been producing more with less human labor decade upon decade upon decade. Back in the 1930s, uh, the, the radio priest, Father Coughlin, he was concerned about automation replacing the human worker in the 1930s. So imagine where it's at now. But there are reasons, as I understand it, why this wouldn't create a nation of loafers, freeloaders, etc., which you hear from uh, the Austrian schoolers and others that, you know, have a visceral way of objecting to what you're talking about. Yes, well, one of the differences with, uh, with the national dividend as compared with a universal basic income, a conventional UBI, has to do with that feedback mechanism that uh, you, you touched on. So if too many people decide to live off of their dividends alone and the amount of human labor that's still required by the economy is not forthcoming, then production will decline and the, the gap will decline and therefore the amount that you could monetize and distribute to people as a dividend would also decline, which would make it more and more difficult for people to, uh, to survive on the dividend alone. So there, you know, as the dividend declines, it would, it would be an indication to people, oh, you know, if we want to live at a higher standard of living, we're going to have to put more effort into paid employment, let's say. Right, so there's, a, there's an inbuilt feedback loop that should eventually reach its own proper equilibrium. And, uh, and the dividend, of course, is uh, something that we, would be enough to keep body and soul together, but it, it's, if people want more, then they'll have to find ways of uh, earning that money, whether it's continuing in paid employment or working outside of the formal economy, you know, providing personal services or things like this. There is a tremendous amount of work that needs to be done outside of the formal economy. Uh, you know, stay-at-home mothers and homemakers used to do a lot of it, and that's incredibly I important work, but it wasn't financially uh, supported. So the national dividend would allow a lot of people uh, volunteers, stay-at-home mothers, like I was saying, uh, artists, a lot, of, a lot of people who have a particular contribution to make the co to the common good, but which is not necessarily rewarded by the free market as it stands to to do those things that they're passionate about and that they enjoy and that actually enrich the lives of all of us uh, by making it financially feasible. You know, uh, we're getting close to the bottom of the hour, Oliver. The um, We um, bypassed one set of ads just because we have a good flow. The bottom of the hour station ID and ads is coming in about two minutes. But I think that you hit on the most important point in answering the question that the cultural heritage, the dividend, and all of that, what that would amount to would be that people could live their passion and work to live and not live to work. And... So therefore, they would only, if they had formal employment, they wouldn't need as much of it. Uh, the dividend would help undergird that. And then if they wanted to follow their passion, painting, music, 
poetry down the road, whatever it might be, anything you can consider, they could they could feasibly do that. And you'd have a much more relaxed cultural fabric and uh, much more, uh, much less conflict at the local level um, um, in terms of um, marriages being more stable. Uh, the whole nine yards, uh, parent and child relationships, parent teenager relationships becoming more stable. You can you can discern how this would iron out a lot of the difficulties in day to day life. Yes, uh, and one thing I would add too is that uh, because of technological development, a policy of full employment, which is you know, sort of the default everywhere, it's not meaningfully possible. Like even now, a certain proportion, a significant proportion of existing jobs would rightly be characterized as witless, useless, redundant, and or destructive. Uh, you think of you know, huge government bureaucracies, uh, but even in the private sector, there's a lot of waste in terms of jobs that have you know, been created to provide employment. But the question is, in terms of the goods and services we need to survive and flourish, do we actually need all those people? Right? So, and which, which is inefficient. That's physically inefficient. If, if because we have this idea everyone's got to have a job in order to get an income, in order to get goods and services, that we, we create employment not because we physically need the employment for the resulting goods and services that contribute something to our survival and flourishing, but we... We insist on having them because we don't know how else to distribute. And we'll be and we'll be right back, Oliver. Station ID. Yep. We'll see you on the other side. You are tuned in to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Visit our website by going to republicbroadcasting.org. Hey there, are you going to wait till the cows come home to get your new ease-off drop and lift? What in the world is an ease-off drop and lift? Our ease-off is a new tool to increase production for your meat processing company that will get that whole hog or half a beef on or off your rail with our remote control. That sounds great, but can I afford it? Sure, and the ease-off installs fast. The effortless operation will reduce fatigue, speed up your line, and increase profits. Okay, I'm convinced. Where can I get my ease-off? Go to easeoff.com. That's E-A-Z-E-O-F-F dot com. And hurry, because we're offering free shipping for a limited time. EaseOff.com. We make pigs fly. Cows, too. EaseOff, LLC, 417-932-6419. Find your inner rebel at Dixie Republic, the world's largest Confederate store, located in Traveler's Rest, South Carolina. The anti-white, anti-Christ, anti-Southern world ends at the asphalt. Welcome to God's country. Log on to DixieRepublic.com to view our Southern merchandise from flags to t-shirts to artwork. At the store, browse through our extensive collection of belt buckles and have a custom-made leather belt handcrafted in our Johnny Rebs gun and leather shop. That's DixieRepublic.com where you can meet all of your Southern needs. 
Support those that support the network. Support Dixie Republic at DixieRepublic.com. Email ProudSouthern123 at gmail.com and let them know that RBN sent you. Homeowners, are you in foreclosure, expecting to be served with a foreclosure lawsuit, or suspect your lender has coerced you into an illegal mortgage transaction? A huge number of mortgages made in the last 10 years have legal issues and are possibly defective. State laws and the U.S. Supreme Court have upheld that defective mortgage documents are grounds for foreclosure defense and for counterclaims in favor of the homeowner. If your mortgage has been sold or assigned since closing the loan, it may be defective and you may be paying the wrong party and the lender may not have standing or the right to foreclose or collect payments under the law. If you would like to know if your mortgage is legal or not or know if you are paying the right party, we can help. Our initial consultations are free of charge. We are not attorneys. We are legal researchers and work closely with experienced lawyers who know how to help you find the evidence to help you keep your home. Email Tom at republicbroadcasting.org. T-O-M at republicbroadcasting.org. Welcome to the second half of Stop the Presses here at the Republic Broadcasting Network. Your host, Mark Anderson. And it is the 10th of January, 2024. And I'm continuing my conversation, not only from the first half of today's show, but from last week with Oliver Haydorn, a a noted uh, uh, author and expert on Douglas Social Credit. I think, uh, Oliver, I think last week you gave your CV a little bit. Uh, just repeat that a little bit for listeners that are hearing this for the first time. Just a quick snippet about your background. Yes, so I am a Ph.D. in philosophy, and I had studied in Liechtenstein, the International Academy of Philosophy there, and I became very interested in finance and money and this sort of thing about 20 years ago. So most of my research since then has been in this area of credit. One of the things that I wanted to mention today was that, uh, you know, this is not an obscure peripheral type of uh, body of thought or movement. There was a time a few decades ago when uh, Douglas Social Credit was quite well known, and, and there were journals and conferences and radio broadcasts and uh, we had two Douglas Social Credit governments in Canada at the provincial level in British Columbia and uh, in Alberta, and they held on to power for many decades. There were 30 Social Credit MPs in the Canadian Parliament as a result of the 1962 election. In the United States, there, were, there was a, a Social Credit bill that had been brought forward in front of uh, Congress, the Goldsboro Bill, I think it was called, and there were people like uh, Robert Heinlein, the, the science fiction writer, was a 
proponent of Douglas Social Credit and, and one of his books, For Us, The Living, A Comedy of Customs, which was published posthumously, was dedicated to explaining the, the ins and outs of a, a Douglas Social Credit economy. We also discovered uh, just last year that Elon Musk's Canadian grandfather, Joshua Haldeman, was a proponent of Douglas Social Credit in the 1940s. He was actually the chairman of the National Council of the Canadian Social Credit Association and ran for election as a candidate in the 1945 uh, federal election. And I'm just, I'm just sort of touching on all the, the people that were involved with uh, Douglas Social Credit in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, and so forth. Unfortunately, all of this has sort of been sent down the Orwellian memory hole, and it's not talked about, and the situation is now worse, of course, because the CCP have appropriated the term to uh, designate their totalitarian reward and punishment system, which, if anything, is the opposite of what Douglas intended. So it's quite diabolical what's happened. Uh, but uh, if anyone is in, knows Elon or is in touch with Elon out there, maybe you can prompt him to say something about uh, the monetary reform proposals that were championed by his own grandfather, Joshua Haldeman, and, and put it on the table for public discussion. Because it is it's not right that these, uh, something like Douglas Social Credit, which has you know extensive body of literature, that it should be ignored when... Honestly, in, in my judgment and judgment of many others, it is the solution to 90% of our financial, economic, social, environmental, political problems. Right? If we can regulate appropriately and in, in line with reality and in line with natural law money, which is the regulator of economic activity, turn the financial system into an honest system that accurately reflects what's going on in the physical economy, then it will be in a position to serve our interests, to, to be a functional system rather than dysfunctional system. And a lot of the problems that it, it, uh, it generates would now uh, be eliminated or would be substantially atrophied. Yes, uh, I think that was very necessary to say, absolutely. Uh, there was a lot going on in the UK with Douglas Social Credit, Australia, New Zealand, and so on and so forth. And uh, there was Gorham Munson, I believe, with Wesleyan University here in the States. I think that's in Connecticut, if memory serves. He wrote yes. wrote on this at, at length. I believe it was called Aladdin's Lamp. And then yes, you've got Aladdin's your... Aladdin's Lamp. Yes. And then you've got your website, socred.org, S-O-C-R-E-D.org, and there's michaeljournal.org, and that's uh, up in Canada, the Pilgrims of St. Michael, and they've been trying to keep it alive, as have you, as has the Australian League of Rights, ALOR.org. And Arnie Lukes uh, has a program every Tuesday at ALOR.org, Australian League of Rights. There, so there's a remnant out there. And um, I think, Oliver, it's, it's definitely a lack of publicity now, you know, objective level-headed publicity about this. And you would think by now that we would have learned as a society, and we're always slow to learn, unfortunately, that the current economic system cannot help. And this is where 
you, you mentioned a pet peeve or something really important to you. Here's one of mine. It's high time that people recognize that the world tyranny and the centralization of power that they see happening and that they want to rightly oppose is happening largely because the financial system, for reasons you already stated, um, automatically drives capital and money to too few of hands. And it is a system built by tyrants for tyrants. That is the current defective debt-based system designed by tyrants for tyrants. Only a tyrant would even run such an amoral, immoral thing. So if you change that basic economic mechanism, you're going to change the, if you will, the political cultural climate to such degree, and you're going to cut down on that centralization of money and power to such a degree that the likelihood of this globe-straddling new world order would be almost nil. Um, so you got to pull the rug out from under it, as it were, correct? Yes. The, I think that the driving force behind the new world order, if, if we use that term to describe the increasing centralization of financial, economic, social, cultural, political power, the driving force behind that is the financial system. So I have um, a colleague in, uh, in Australia who has often used this analogy. He talks about all these groups and you know, associations and individuals who really don't like what they're seeing in the world, and you know, they, they'll pick up on some particular topic or some particular issue or problem that is um, close to them somehow or, or interests them. And they'll dedicate a lot of time and energy to counteracting uh, some of these things. So, for example, some people, uh, they really have very strong feelings about abortion and legalized abortion. And uh, they will you know, attend rallies and they'll get involved in pro-life groups. And, and that's all very good. But that whole issue, that one issue is sort of, you can think of it as, a, as an incoming missile. Now, another incoming missile might be the whole transgender phenomenon and how that's being pushed and how people are expected to change their habits in order to accommodate um, what the, the powers that be tell us the narrative should be regarding um, transgender individuals or individuals who suffer from gender dysphoria. And that's another incoming missile. And, and there's... <laughs> Right now in the States, you've got large numbers of, of illegal immigrants that are coming into the country, and the, your federal government doesn't seem to be willing or able to secure the southern border, which is all very strange. So that's another legitimate issue that somebody might, um, might become passionate about and try to do something about. But all of these missiles, these incoming missiles that are assailing us, they all come from the same place, which is the, the financial system and the, the owners, national and international, of the financial system, because it's a power and wealth centralizing system, are in a position to maneuver the chess pieces against us. So as long as you leave the missile launcher, right, in this analogy, the missile launcher is the, the financial system, as long as you leave it in the hands of the globalists, we might win a battle here or a battle there, but they will come up with something else to send in our direction. So this, this financial 
question and, and Douglas Social Credit as, as one um, proposed remedy for the essential ills of, of finance is not some academic you know, matter or of peripheral interest. It goes right to the heart of contemporary politics. Uh, well put, because, yeah, if you want to get into the grassroots of it, you mentioned a while back today that, uh, for example, women wanting to be at-home mothers and to feel secure in their home, hearth and home, receiving the much-deserved and legitimate dividend because we'd all be shareholders in the common cultural and scientific and technological heritage, that stay-at-home mother and other would-be mothers, knowing that that system exists, would it not be true that they would more likely uh, procreate within the framework of marriage because marriage itself would become much more conceivable, doable, pleasant, uh, constructive. Therefore, they would feel more prepared to bear children and they wouldn't feel like the bottom's going to drop out at any moment. And would it not be true that over time, the desire, a.k.a. demand for abortions, regardless of what Planned Parenthood is doing, would that would that demand not go down? And therefore, would abortions beyond the effects of seeing ultrasounds and, hey, that is a real child, I don't want to kill it, that's all good and well, and that, that should keep going. But wouldn't it be true, and it certainly sounds like it would be, that abortion over time would become almost unthinkable? Yes, well, they say that uh, the number one motivation for abortion uh, falls into the category of, of socioeconomic pressure. So it's um, because people maybe can't make ends meet or they, they fear, you know, if, they get, if a woman gets pregnant and she has to be looking after a child, maybe she'll lose her employment and then what would happen? So if you could alleviate that concern then one of the major reasons uh, for abortion would be eliminated through, let's say, the institution of a national dividend. And uh, the interesting thing, too, to tie this up with the, the immigration matter again, uh, the current financial system, it's, uh, in order to achieve a balance through the conventional palliatives uh, of you know, relying on somebody to borrow additional money into existence in the banking system in order to buoy up the level of, of consumer buying power. Um, it, it requires that the economy grows, that it, that it, it embarks on sort of a debt-fueled cancerous growth. And in order for that to happen, uh, you've got to have a steadily increasing population. If the native population or the indigenous population, so to speak, is not reproducing at the required rate, sustain that level of economic growth in order to ensure equilibrium under the existing financial system, then any country that wants to maintain its economic momentum and not fall into recession has to find ways of increasing its population by other means. And that's why, uh, historically, uh, so many Western nations, for example, have been bringing in so many people every year because it's, it's actually, under the existing financial system, an economic necessity. So if you could balance the system, create a sort of inherent homeostasis where we don't have to rely, rely on 
that fueled cancerous growth to achieve equilibrium. We can purchase in full whatever we produce because the financial system will be designed as an honest system that accurately reflects reality and will you know, empower us with sufficient buying power to buy back what we produce, then you end up solving both problems, right? So you uh, reduce the pressure put on women to uh, opt out of, of marriage or opt out of, of childbearing or, you know, have an abortion, what have you, so that we are able to reproduce. And at the same time, uh, y you remove the perhaps the, the number one incentive or the number one reason behind mass migration. And it works on the flip side, too. If we lived in, an, in a world of social credit nations, poorer countries, developing countries, with a Douglas social credit system in place, would be able to provide a livelihood for their own populations, and they wouldn't seek to export those populations to other countries, to developing countries. And, and, uh, and those people, I mean, given the opportunity to live a decent life in their own countries, the vast majority of people would prefer to stay put. So it, it would be a win-win. Uh, so there are all these ramifications social, cultural, political ramifications beyond, you know, merely what seem to be on the surface mere questions of, of money. You know, you uh, opened up another insight for me there, Oliver. That was very well said. Okay, if our country is, without saying it, at the national level, they don't really want to voice this. If, if at some level, in some meeting somewhere that we never hear about, there's a conversation and it's, you know, Maybe the migrant thing is unpleasant to many people, but we need the workers for reasons you just stated. Might it not be true that in Latin American countries where the birth rates tend to be higher, th their little secret committee meetings that you never hear about is we need to shed some of these people. And so one country with a high birth rate, maybe they're Latin American Catholic, traditionally, you know, larger families, they're saying, you know, we got more mouths to feed than we can handle. We've got all this imbalance because of too many people. What country, hmm, let me think, has a declining birth rate? And they just said, Oliver, there's a news item I need to look into that Michigan, for the first time, may have had more deaths than births in 2023. And that abortion, according to LifeSite News, may have played a huge role in Michigan having more deaths than births last year. So might it not be true that uh, country A secret meeting says we don't have enough people, country B secret meeting says we have too many, and that even though there are other forces at work, cartels, traffickers, and other exploiters, that might it not be true that at the foundation of all this is what I just said? Yes. So it, it's it sort of ends up being a, a mutually beneficial arrangement, and um, you know, so we turn a blind eye and wink, wink, and that sort of thing. But it's it's only mutually beneficial because every country in the world is running its economy on a financial system which is is not properly designed. It's it's could be likened to faulty software, faulty computer software. So, you know, what we suggest is, why don't we fix the software so we can get better results from the hardware? That's an interesting analogy, too. You know, I was thinking recently, 
just kind of idly thinking about this, isn't the purpose or shouldn't the purpose of an economy be that over time you would build an economy and you, yes, in the earlier years, there's a lot of muscle work, there's a lot of grunt work, there's a lot of thinking, there's a lot of inventing going on. But as it becomes more modernized and efficient in all the ways you describe and other ways that maybe we can't even imagine, uh, that over time you would build an economy that would serve you rather than you having to serve it. And, uh, you know, Douglas did say systems are for men, not men for systems. So shouldn't the whole idea of building economy be to build an economy that would take our nose off the grindstone, not keep it there, and allow us to flourish in our individual and family pursuits and not be at the beck and call of the financial debt-based system that we have now, that would largely dissolve. And the whole idea of world war and brinkmanship over trade would largely disappear. And intelligence agencies would have increasingly less to do, in my estimation. Um, uh, I think they're out there largely to protect the overall system. I don't think intelligence agencies protect one country from another, espionage and all that, like we've been bred to believe. I think the, the all of the intelligence agencies work together to protect the financial system from the average person. And, of course, when you have that centralized economic system, what's the first thing you're going to buy? You're going to buy the media, right? So there you go. Just yeah. just some observations, but it makes sense to build an economy that would forever serve us rather than us serve it. Once it reaches a certain level, it would take on a momentum of its own, and we would all be content under our fig tree uh, in the hearth of our home um, without being under a constant pressure. And even those self-employed like myself, I still find myself, even though there's certain benefits to self-employment, I still find myself almost always having to think about what's the next thing I'm going to have to do to earn money. Not that it's wrong to work and earn money in and of itself. It isn't. But constant, relentless effort just to put mouth in my uh, bread in my mouth after a while becomes uh, infuriating. Uh, it's, like, it's like you can't rest for five minutes. Right. Yeah, so, I mean, one analogy there, you could look at uh, washing machines. You know, wh why do we develop any invention? It's to make things easier, right? Why were washing machines developed? So we wouldn't have to wash clothes by hand. Now, if, under because of the way the existing financial system functions, if every time we come up with an invention to make something easier, it only frees us to do more work in the formal economy, we're not ultimately being freed, and, uh, you know, Doug Douglas said that he thought most people's needs were actually quite straightforward, quite simple. You think about food, shelter, clothing, education, transport, health care, etc. Uh, you know, we should get to the point where we can relax about economic provision and that we could focus our attention on other things. Right? So what, what would be these other things? Well, it would be everything that falls broadly into the sphere of, of culture, cultural development. And that could be anything from scientific research to, you know, uh, artistry of, of every type conceivable to, uh, you know, the religious, spiritual life. There's so many things, meaningful things that people can do with their time to benefit themselves and others. 
besides, you know, clocking in at 9 o'clock and clocking out at 5 p.m. Insofar as people still do that. <laughs> yeah, and, and I'll notice we got about two or three minutes left only today, Oliver, and this has been a very uh, informative talk here. Um, I've noticed that coming out of the COVID, COVIDocracy, that's the bureaucracy that uh, grew up around COVID, but COVID had a strange ironic dynamic to it whatever it exactly was we won't get into it but there was a lot of crackdowns and lockdowns that were really unnecessary and quite unpleasant uh tyrannical government showing their face but a lot of people were broken of the habit the mental and physical habit of working now it does have deleterious effects under the current system but it did wake people up to like why am I working so much? Uh, I couldn't work during the COVID crackdown and the lockdown. And then I discovered that maybe I ought not to work all the time. Maybe that's not how life is supposed to be. A little bit of that ray of light began to uh, penetrate an otherwise dark room in our society. And so uh, I know Douglas talked about, we got about a minute left. Douglas talked about there, there'll be a time when we know or ought to know that it's time to create a new system and enter into enter into a new civilization, if you will. And that's not the reset that the World Economic Forum talks about. It's the exact opposite of that. But that time seems to be now, and maybe COVID, ironically, taught us that time is now. Am I wrong? Well, I think we're sort of at the crossroads, right? We, at this point in world history, we either go the Douglas social credit route, where we reform the monetary system to serve public interest to serve the common good and you know through the dividend and the discount allow technology to free people so that they can um, enjoy the fruits of what's been bequeathed to them in the cultural heritage and and we start spending more and more time and energy on other activities be, besides you know mere economics or we end up going down sort of the Great Reset, the World Economic Forum route, where, guess what? Because of automation, artificial intelligence, other te similar technologies, they don't require the labor of the vast majority of the population anymore. The vast majority of the population fall into the category of useless eaters who are simply using up resources that the, the global oligarchs would prefer to monopolize for their own purposes. We'll so have to what, leave it what there. will become... Yep. Yeah, we'll have to leave it there, Oliver. But yeah, what would become of us, right? And uh, I would just add that, you know, uh, people uh, earning the dividend would be earning the wage of the machine, that the uh, value of what's created by the machines would uh, change into dividends. So production still rewards the people, even if they work regular jobs alongside of it. So thanks, Oliver, for being on the show. Thank you very much, Mark. Yeah, a, a great explanation and more to think about compared with last week and this week together. It's a really good overview. Uh, have a great day, Oliver. Have a great day, everybody. Stay tuned for the next show here at RBN. I'm Mark Anderson with South Presses. Finding independent voices that counter this avalanche is becoming increasingly difficult. With the endless corruption running rampant throughout our government, independent voices are needed more than ever to battle the offensive against our freedoms and liberties. As a listener of RBN, no one understands this concept better than you. Now it's up to you to do your part. The time has come for you to take action and begin broadcasting the truth to hundreds or thousands of people every month. Sound impossible? 
Quite the contrary. With pointed slogans from LibertyStickers.com, you can reach countless sleeping Americans unaware that they live in a real-life wonderland. LibertyStickers.com has a huge inventory of political bumper stickers and messages that reflect the truth about our government, our politicians, and the future of America. With so many in stock, there's one perfect for you. Visit us today at LibertyStickers.com. Again, that's LibertyStickers.com. Do your part. Your voice is important. Let it be heard. You're listening to Real Talk Radio. Only on the Republic Broadcasting Network. (laughs) 